and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with the writer and poet Cynthia Cruz about her new book, The Melancholia of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class. I was intrigued by this book's argument, which at first I thought seemed like almost absurd, just how invisible the working class are in the United States. But the more I thought about it, the more I really saw it everywhere. And I realized, oh yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I guess in the most obvious places, which is like representation in popular media that, you know, there's rarely like a television show or a movie, a popular movie that's based around the lives of of working class people. It's like the kind of median for representation always does seem to be middle class or like Nancy Myers movies where it's like magically upper middle class with no uh, representation of of how one got there. Just in general, you know, I, I think that the claims are bold in this book, but they really, if you think about it and look at things, hold up in these surprising ways. And uh, Cynthia Cruz is a poet, so she has a real care for language. And I was really happy to come across it. Yeah, that all sounds right to me. I also really enjoyed the way that she brought in artists and and writers and sort of called attention to their work in terms of their working class backgrounds, like Amy Winehouse and some other musicians. So that's interesting as well, but maybe we should get to the conversation. Today we're joined by Cynthia Cruz, whose latest book is called The Melancholia of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Cynthia, I want to start kind of at the beginning and talk about the reaction you got when you told people, your colleagues, that you were writing this book, because I think it's so telling for the entire subject of the book. How did people respond when you said the subject of this book? It's such a great question. In fact, that could have been its own book. But just, you know, in the introduction to the book, of course, I talk about this or the preface. Having a conversation with an activist and a former professor of mine, and I was so excited about this book. It's so important. And when I was explaining it to them, they said to me, don't worry. You don't look or sound working class. So there's that. And that was really kind of enigmatic for me because I thought, but what... I mean, there's so much in there, right? I'm also half Mexican and people, not so much now, but they used to say things like, don't worry, you don't look Mexican. You know, it's a similar kind of thing there. But mostly I didn't tell people I was writing about the book because I just, it was sort of self-protection. But this moment when I did tell my former professor, I felt very close. It was an intimate conversation we had had. This was at the end of it. So it was very shocking. And as I said in the book, I, I didn't react in the moment. Yeah, there's this assumption that we know exactly what, someone who's working class would sound like or look like, and that that is a far distance from someone who could be sitting, maybe, you know, speaking with a colleague about writing an analytical book of essays about the subject of working class and the way that people's working class backgrounds can shape their art or kind of manifest in artistic production. So I just, I thought that was, just explains the exact reason why this book is kind of needed. I think that the invisibility 
of class politics in this country, but then also of just working class people in general. It's so much at the heart of your book. So maybe you could talk about if that is accurate. You know, mm-hmm. do you think that the working class or the concept of working class has really disappeared in this country? And then how does that manifest in relation to the book that you wrote? One of the problems I was chasing after when I began this book and as I wrote the book was this kind of dialectic, these two contradictions. On one hand, I, not so much now, but before I wrote the book, I was constantly sort of being told by my middle-class colleagues, a professor of mine, you know, everyone I'm surrounded with, that there are no classes. I've had conversations with people and they would literally tell me, you know, there are no working class people or they never see working class people. So that was very odd to me because, of course, there are people who are visibly working class, like bus driver, teachers, nurses, for example. And then there's many of us that are not visibly. So but there's lots of us, the majority of us. On the other hand, I also encountered and continue to encounter this kind of antagonism towards the working class this kind of antagonism that I felt all the time or often and still feel all the time and quite literally disparaging, insulting remarks about the working class told to me because people aren't aware of that in working class, that these awful things people will say, how could that exist if there's no working class, right? And I found this super interesting and this was kind of at the center of the whole project, I think. I mean, there's many other pieces of it, but this was very enigmatic to me and it was my job to try to figure this out. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? So, I mean, one of the central parts of this book and what we've already touched on is that you identify as working class. Can you talk a little bit about your personal history and your identification with the working class? It's hard because I think that because we live in U.S. culture, I grew up and all I saw was middle class culture. And there were vestiges. I mean, right. So I, you know, I write about the jam or I write about these different bands or writers, but they start to disappear. But anyway, so I didn't know anything about class. And I think this is really sort of indicative of U.S. culture. So I... I knew, you know, that my dad worked. I knew he was a worker. He calls himself a regular, I think what he would say, like a a lunch bucket Charlie. That's what he would say, right? So there are these kinds of words or, you know, my brother and my uncle are both mechanics and I worked since high school. So the material is all there. But I should say too that my parents, they never contextualized this or said this, but assimilation was obviously important for them for us. So we grew up in middle-class neighborhoods and went to middle-class public schools. I think the idea was we would just kind of melting pot, right? This would just sort of magically, we would just become middle-class. And again, I wasn't aware of this was never explained. This is just sort of what I've worked out. So I had no concept and class was never taught to me. I never learned anything about it undergrad, graduate school, all the stuff I know, I I just learned on my own. So it's complicated, right? So I feel like the material experience was a working class lifestyle, right? And working class, I would say precarious. We never owned a home. We lived in like 20 different places before junior high or something. And I mean, I could tell all kinds of examples, but I would say working class, working poor is how we grew up. But again, I didn't know. I just thought there was something wrong with me and my family. And so I think writing the book is really important for me to sort of articulate this into life, but also I know it's helped other people who've had similar experiences. I think this is really common in the U.S. You know, people grow up feeling like they're middle class and strange, and they don't realize that they're actually working class. It's just kind of weird thing because we don't have the language, literally. So I just felt a lot of antagonism. My experience, you know, as a poet in 
the U.S. literary world has been very strange. I, you know, I publish stuff. My books get published. I think I tried on and off for 20 years to get a full-time teaching position. I have six books of poetry. I had a hotter, you know, I have poems in Paris Review, all of these prestigious places, and I cannot get a full-time teaching job. And at a certain point, I looked around and realized there are no, I don't know of any full-time working class poets or writers in any of the departments, any working class writers who then identify, who don't try to sort of pass as middle class and pretend that they're not working class, right? I think that's an important piece. So seeing that, and I think when I finally realized that what it was is my class, it was like a beautiful revelation sort of, because it made sense for all of these things, you know, all of these experiences as a student and as a teacher. Something that I really picked up on in your book is some of the examples of artists who you use are people who have a certain amount of refusal about assimilating. Probably like someone's cultural capital is one of the only ways sometimes that they can escape a working class background. You know, we have in the United States, we have a lot of examples of maybe like entrepreneurs, but the other example is artists, people who were born poor and then became famous. And so then were able to make that leap. But this idea of certain people not wanting or being able to assimilate and that actually haunting them and kind of making this melancholia as you term it. Talk about that and if I'm picking up on this idea of refusal recurring correctly. Exactly. I love that word so much. So this almost all of the musicians and writers that I and Barbara Loden too, the filmmaker that I write about are people who in some way or another could not or would not assimilate, which is to say to trade in who they were, could not assimilate to middle-class culture. This book was the result of an essay I wrote a couple years ago, and it just kind of kept building. And one of the things I thought of at the end of that essay was this melancholia and how can we deal with this melancholia. And for me, it was by surrounding myself with other artists who are working class, even if they're dead or mostly all dead, I still have them sort of with me all the time. So I think having those people with me or having them as heroes, really. I mean, I love Genet, for example, for many reasons, but one of those reasons is that he never assimilated. And I love that. But the other thing is, where do we go? And this was one of the questions. And this is a question I'm looking at now. I'm working on another project. Because if capitalism, right, if we believe what Mark Fisher says, that capitalism or other people say is everywhere and there's no escape, which is what I think. It's not like there's an escape. Then where do we go? And there's different things in the melancholy class. I talk about many of the people I write about use drugs or alcohol, eating disorders. There are ways to escape, but only momentarily, and they usually end up in self-harm. But I've been trying to think of ways, art is one, right? But thinking of ways that we can find alternative spaces, because it's you either assimilate and you annihilate yourself or you annihilate yourself. And then there must be something in the middle, which is what I'm sort of, I think the book was trying to sort of look at, but now I'm really looking more closely at. I was going to maybe backtrack a little bit to like assimilation into what? I think like we touched on part of the opposition is not just between, you know, the working class and the ruling class necessarily, but an opposition between a culture that exists and a culture that does not get represented in the mainstream, which is, as you had said, almost consistently middle-class representation or upper middle-class representation. So When we talk about assimilation, or when you think about assimilation, what is it that you're talking about? It's assimilating into what? Like for listeners for whom 
that might not be an intuitive leap? What is it? What does the larger culture look like? What is it that working class people are pressured into assimilating into? The main thing I was thinking about when you asked that question was, and Barbara Loden talks about this, there's a kind of slickness. So as a writer or poet in the U.S., so when I talk about writing, I'm talking about the work that is featured in the better known journals. I don't know what everyone's writing, but this is what I'm talking about. And the work tends to be, there's a distance between the writer and what they're writing about. And there's a kind of slickness of polish to it. I thought that it was very strange. And one of the things I realized is this is one of the aesthetics. This is like the middle-class aesthetic, or this is what gets published. This is also with music. It's a similar thing. And even with film, there's a kind of veneer. So you could see, for example, with Mark Linkus, when he's making music, he's creating pop songs. But as he says, he's smearing this kind of, like a grunge, right, on top of it. Or even Barbara Loden, the way she loved Warhol films. And so she made the films, it was like the static on the film and a handheld camera. And there's this kind of sense of the real, right? The actual, the material, right? And this is something that I don't see thinking about the aesthetics of the culture I live in or what gets published, what is praised is not that. And so I saw this in workshops I was in, and then I see this in the workshops that I teach in, and then I see it in the art world, for example, this distance. So when I talk about assimilation, that's like a superficial thing, but there's also the idea, thinking about progress, right? Progress is really important in our culture. And progress usually means that what happened like even 10 years ago is not so important. But for me, for example, my family's history is important, right? And I'm thinking of Walter Benjamin and what he talks about how the working class and the oppressed have been erased completely, right? So part of the project for me is to archive my life and the life of other working class artists and writers so that their ancestors can also be archived because we have been erased. So it's not just me. This project is actually you know, I wrote it, but it's really about all these other people that have been erased. But in a culture where it's all about progress and it's all about the future and everyone's sort of middle-class culture, it's all about taking a kind of tabula rasa and then creating something. So you read about artists in the art world or musicians or whatever, and they take this kind of blank slate and create something. But I'm coming from a world where we are something and assimilating means becoming invisible, not invisible, you know what I mean, blank. And then having to take on that other thing, which means, of course, losing myself, that I'm not myself. It's not like I can, I can't become somebody else. So this idea of assimilation really is annihilation. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Cynthia Cruz, author of The Melancholia of Class, a manifesto for the working class. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Amiya Srinivasan on the line with us today. Her new book is a collection of essays. It's called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. And she is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Amiya, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend an absolutely extraordinary book. It is called Revolting Prostitutes. The authors are Juno Mack and Molly Smith. They are two British sex workers. Revolting Prostitutes is just a mind-blowingly good and dispositive argument for the total decriminalization of sex work. It's an extraordinary piece of political theory, sociology. It draws feminist theory, the lived experience of sex workers, and one important insight it makes is that we have a choice 
to make between on one hand, symbolically punishing men right, through laws that target sex work and actually improving the lives of the worst off women who very often end up in sex work. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the authors? The book is called Revolting Prostitutes and the authors are Molly Smith and Juno Mack. Sounds very good. Thank you so much, Mia. Thank you. We've been speaking with Amiya Srinivasan. Her new book is called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Cynthia Cruz, author of The Melancholia of Class. I was interested in the book you devote you know, a certain amount of time to talking about like subcultures and um, the mods and the dandies in England. And, and even I'm, you know, listening to you talk, I'm thinking about how like in this really superficial way, there's something in United States culture with fashion and writing and all these things where it's like constantly going back to certain decades, like, oh, now everyone's interested in, you know, the seventies or this time, but it's as though it's like stripped of, of the meaning I was just suddenly, oh, we're all just like reinterested in the 70s again, but no one says, well, why? What happened then? Or these just these kind of totems that were important for people, for working class people in, in making their subcultures, like returning to the 50s, returning to other things. Could you talk a little bit about that, about the importance of subculture and the, also the erasure of how, you know, most subculture in this country does kind of come from the working class? But I've been thinking a lot about... Um punk, which I hadn't for a long time. And of course, that comes from um, the working class in reaction to neoliberalism and Thatcher. Um, And I was just reading about Chris Killip did this project, this photographer of this place called The Station. I forgot what town, and I'm really sorry about that. This town where um, the the working class kids would go into this sort of um, community center, and it was communally run. And it was a place where these different bands would perform and all of the kids would go and there's this footage of them, I mean, photographs of them just uh, dancing, right? Men's bodies um, just moving. And you could see how, again, um, the energy of frustration and rage and humiliation and everything just gets translated into this um, this movement, right? But it was a place, right? We're talking earlier about, you know, how do we find these spaces that are outside of capitalism. And so this is an example, which is why I'm going back to it, right? And of course the place gets closed and those people is all gone, right? It's all gone, but right. And of course it all gets swallowed up. I mean, so much so that it's the way that it just keeps getting sort of regurgitated through culture and it has no meaning anymore. And one of the things that you address in this book, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about is the relative potential or apparent visibility of the working class in politics right now? I mean, you counter that, I think. And I think certain readers might see this and say, well, but rise of Trump, the rise of various other kinds of political movements in the U.S. and across the world, isn't that a version of working class visibility? We see a lot of working class uh, representation now in politics and maybe perhaps in a, a larger amount than we should. Can you talk, I mean, you address this in the book. Can you talk about that, about that 
apparent visibility in, in politics. Right, I know that um, the conception in the U.S. is that all Trump voters or most Trump voters are working class and they're stupid. You know, I hear this all the time. They're stupid. They're uneducated. They don't know better. My experience has been um, anecdotal, but um, I live in Greenpoint. I live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and my neighbors voted for Trump and they're all um, financial people. I, I don't know what their political um, but they voted for him for economic reasons. And I have some people um, in my family um, who had not voted for um, anyone with the, were Democrats, um, who voted for him um, for the same reasons. I need to do more work on this about the Capitol event, but my understanding is that most of those people were not poor or working class, the people who actually were at that thing. There's that, is what I'll say. And I guess the other thing I would say is my, so my understanding, um, right, is that the Democratic Party in the U.S. was the working class party. And I know that my father talked about it. That's true. They were the Labor Party. Um, and then neoliberalism came around and they abandoned the working class. And I, um, my understanding, my feeling is that most working class poor Americans, uh, which I mean the U.S., don't engage in, in American politics. So they don't feel represented by Trump or by Bernie Sanders or anyone, right? There's a kind of, um, I talk about this with one of the workers, that there's just this like closing of the door and forget it, you know, which is a kind of um, escape. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, looking at France and actually Germany also, um, the way that these, um, the working class have been abandoned and how I think most then stay out of politics and then some are actually pulled into these um, far-right movements, I think, in France, for example. But to be honest, I don't know enough. I don't have the statistics. Looking at, for instance, as you do here, anorexia or bulimia, and those are for diseases that I associate with, you know, middle-class women who have to fit into these impossible standards or who have other, other reasons, of course, for having those illnesses. You really zero in on anorexia and bulimia as problems, you know, not just in, in middle-class women's lives or people's lives. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that. Well, I personally have struggled since I was 11, so for the majority of my life with an eating disorder, functional, so chronic. And so I, I take myself as sort of a case study and um, have been sort of trying to solve this problem for many years and looked at it different ways. But the one thing I know for sure is that for me, it was always a form of resistance. It was not a form of um, trying to conform to um, any kind of beauty standard. It was something else. It was really this way of trying to find an alternative space, right? So I thought, well, if that's the case for me, then Perhaps that's the case for other people. And I was looking at Amy Winehouse, who um, obviously also had chemical addictions, but um, obviously had anorexia and bulimia. And this is um, obviously, she talks about in interviews it's in the film and, and she died of a heart attack, which is related to anorexia. It's an interesting thing because uh, it became an epidemic um, in the late 70s in the U.S., let's say, um, which is the same time that neoliberalism came about. And so I found that very interesting that there's this kind of um, 
convergence of the two. And so anorexia, which is what I mostly think about, but anorexia or bulimia are, is a very strange case because in some ways it looks like it's a conforming to capitalist culture, right? That's what people think when they think of these things. But it's um, like the dandy is taking it too far, right? It's actually, um, it's very interesting how in our culture, if somebody loses a lot of weight, someone famous loses a lot of weight, or just somebody loses a lot of weight, they get a lot of accolades. There's a sense that they're strong, they have a lot of willpower, but there's a certain um, line, if you pass that line, that people don't want to talk about it anymore. Literally, you know, I've seen anorexic um, bodies on the street and people look the other way. It's like you can go so far if you go that other end. And so to me, anorexia for the working class or working poor um, is different. And what's been very interesting is I've received some responses from people and quite a number of the responses from male and female readers has um, from working class and working poor backgrounds um, has been that they themselves or siblings of theirs have suffered from anorexia. And so I kind of had this hunch and thought this was true. And then I'm kind of, I'm finding out that this is actually, I think, the case. So I'm not arguing that anorexia or eating disorder is a working class problem, but just that um, it's not true what people thought before, that it's this middle class or elite problem, um, and that perhaps it's a different kind of thing. Which again, in the book, I compare it to dandyism, right? So the dandy can look like it. Um, they're trying to pass as wealthy, but they take it too far, right? So they go out and it's like, what are you doing? And, you know, the original dandy had no money. So it is this kind of like really taking it too far. And I, I think there's a similarity between the two. And even if, you know, aside from the symbolic nature of it, just this way again, where since we don't ever hear of or, you know, we don't often hear of working class people who have anorexia or bulimia. It's just another form of kind of erasure um, as well that, you know, that it's only this one kind of, it's only this disease that affects this one kind of person and not giving space for this whole other section of the population. Right. And I just want to add in too that there's, um, so women of color, so um, non women who have eating disorders and there are plenty of um, us or them are um, not misdiagnosed. They're not diagnosed, right? So they go to see the doctor and there's this idea that only white women have eating disorders. So for a lot of women, um, that's not even on the um, doctor's radar. Women not living in Western countries, this is also the case. And then of course, I think this is probably also the case for poor and working class women. I mean, if they have healthcare, if they're seeing a doctor, it probably isn't even in the conversation for, for the medical establishment, right? And I think that this is also a part of it. So in the, in the book, you know, you, I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to talk more about, you know, all the, all the artistic examples you bring in, but um, I was especially interested by your discussion of cat power, mm-hmm. um, Chan Marshall, who, whose background I didn't really know. And, um, you know, she tried, she assimilated uh, into making more slicker music, kind of um, not, not honoring her roots as much, but there are a lot of other people who you write about or a, num- a few. And um, we, I always talk about the movie Barb, uh, I've talked about the movie Wanda like on on this show so many times, but um, like Barbara Loden is a successful example of someone who kind of overcame this melancholia of class by actually going back to where she was from and looking at her background. So is that how you think people who kind of hang in the balance 
can overcome the melancholy of class is by actually confronting their past, you know, kind of ending this internal repression and um, looking at their circumstance. Yeah, no, exactly. And I just have to say, you know, that Cat Power chapter was really um, hard because I love her so much. I love, you know, I do. And I, I just, her work is so important to me. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, 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 I don't think the melancholy goes away. I mean, melancholy, I think by definition, doesn't go away. Um, it doesn't. But there's this internal split, I think, is really dangerous, to be honest. I think it's really... Um, I mean, to be internally split in that way is, is just very violent and dangerous. So I think one could go back to one's actual home, right? This is, um, I think, useful, the material, you know, like, if you can. For someone like me, there is no home. There is, there's no place, actually. Um, and for many people, there is no place to go back to either. So then there's there's different things. I mean, there's, there's the music, there's the artist, there's this kind of come camaraderie with others. Um, and I think that works. It's a kind of tapping into, but I think you said, I forgot exactly what you said, but it's something about um, just kind of reconciling, right? Turning to who one is, right? To their working class um, origins and yeah, reconciling it, whatever that looks like. I think there's a lot of different ways that that can look and everyone's different. And of course the working class is huge, right? There's so many um, variations of it, right? So yeah, I think I think that that is, I recently went back to, um, I go to Germany often, half German, and I, I went to go stay with my mother's best friend. My mother's very sick, so she can't go. My mother kept imploring me to go visit her best friend, which seemed very odd to me, to be honest. Um, but it seemed like one of these things that were important. So I did, and I stayed, I think, four or five days with her and her husband, and it was lovely. A lot, of, a lot of wonderful things. But one of the main things was that um, I saw the, ta- the street that my mother grew up on. Um, they were living in the same little house and it's a steel town in Germany, Folklingen. Um, and they live in the outskirts, but they still live in that town. And so they never left. Um, there's a lot to say, and this is a different kind of project. But one of the things I thought of was how I felt, it's going to seem so anecdotal and perhaps it is, but Right, they have all of their neighbors, you know, across the street. Somebody's building their house, and someone was doing their garden, and um, and there's all these different neighborhoods, and everybody in that area is um, descended from that still mill, and now there are factories in that area, and so the people who work now work in those factories. So it's kind of all this um, larger community, and that was something I had never experienced, and I, I was thinking about what it's like. I felt very seen, I guess is what I want to say, by my mother's um, best friend and her husband and um, and just what it's like to grow up in a community of people who know you in this sort of organic way. And so for me, I grew up right in this very, in this middle class world with middle class people. And so it was constantly sort of interpolated this stra- the strangeness, right? There's something wrong with me and what that does to a person. And I guess this isn't answering your question, but that was very profound for me. And I was just, I think it is related to this, the question you asked in a different way that, that um, there's a way that I didn't have to explain myself. Right. I mean, maybe I have odd eccentricities or whatever, but it, it just is like we all do. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was um, very life changing these few days. Maybe in terms of in terms of moving forward and, and your book, what do you think are the ways in which hmm. the working class can be rendered more visible culturally or politically? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you know, even for people who do not self-identify as working class. So that complicated things. And I was thinking about that. But I think, honestly, I think that, um, I think just just saying these things, you know, um, I had a conversation in my, in a class I was teaching yesterday where um, we're talking about Mark Fisher's work. And we're looking at Mark Fisher and um, we're talking about the, um, palimpsest quality of it, the way that he references um, philosophers, but he also writes in a very um, straightforward way. He writes about the working class. It's, it's like a tapestry. And I think that makes it available to everyone. And I was explaining how my father was not able to finish um, elementary school because he had to work as a field worker. But if I read that chapter to him, this is one chapter we're looking at, um, surely there were, there would be parts my father would, what's he talking about? But I know there would be parts where he would understand the part, for example, where the, um, the Joy Division chapter I'm thinking of, where the singer is talking about um, his childhood and having to move from one council housing to another and how that affected him. My dad would totally understand that. But there was some conversation in the class about how working class people um, can't read theory, right? Or they can't read certain kinds of um, writings. And this is a common idea, right? But there was a great discussion, and um, I think even just in the class discussing it, right, um, talking about how that's not the case, right, actually, my father, with no education, um, talks to me all the time about um, religion and the Pope and history and the world and God and philosophical things, right, that changed the the minds of some of the people in the class. And I think that um, because this is a topic that has not um, been talked about in this country, more so in other countries, but not in this country, I really think that just um, talking about it will make a difference. And it's probably very optimistic of me, but I think that um, I had this sense, and I wrote this in the book, that just by, by talking about this, that I was um, sort of bringing the working class to life, or at least my ancestors. And I think that there's something to be said for that. I also know that um, some of the people who have written to me have said that as a result of reading the book, they now feel like they can write about things that they couldn't before. So I do think um, that can change things. And the people who maybe don't want to, you know, aren't artists or don't want to talk about it, I think then they might be seen a little bit more. You know, when I talk about the fact that, you know, people I know say they never see working class people, but they have, like I've said, nannies or teachers or bus drivers or all these other people, maybe somebody will read that and see that, right? So I think, um, I don't think that's the final stage, to be honest, right? I mean, that's not like the final, you know, utopia, but it's a lot further than we were. And I feel like it's a step. Thanks so much, Cynthia. We've been speaking with Cynthia Cruz. Her latest book is called The Melancholia of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.